Welcome to the Addison Street Community Church Podcast. Our mission is to be a community of believers proclaiming the gospel of Jesus Christ through worship, discipleship, and service. Our prayer is that you're transformed by the Word of God in the following message, and we trust that you're using this podcast as a supplement to your participation in the life of a gospel church near you. Let's now hear what God has for us. Well, good morning. Uh, I'd invite you to open up your Bibles to Matthew chapter 2 this morning. We're starting in verse 13, and it is such a joy and privilege to just be in this gathering this morning as the saints in Grand Rapids at Crossroads Bible Church are meeting right now, so are we here, and I have so much affection and love for this church, uh, you all, even though I, I don't know many of you, I pray for you often as I pray for my brother and uh, I follow along with your teaching series, and um, I'm good friends with Will, and I am just thankful uh, and privileged to open up God's Word with you this morning. And uh, I'm not even sure I need to preach after we just read Romans 8, so, uh, but uh, we'll do it anyways. All right, Matthew chapter 2, verses 13 through 23, and before we hop into that, I'm just going to pray one more time. Father in heaven, we are thankful that your word speaks even today and that you've given us words that pierce us, change us, uproot things in our lives that need to be uprooted and restore things that were designed for our hearts to flourish on, mainly your word by your spirit. And so God, I ask that you speak to us again in a new way through the same old word that you've given to all of your saints through the generations. Lord, we know that your word will not return void, and so we ask that you do that again today. Pray that in Christ's name. Amen. All right, this is uh, God's word from the Gospel of Matthew. Now, when they had departed... Behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream and said, Rise, take the child and his mother and flee to Egypt and remain there until I tell you. For Herod is about to search for the child and destroy him. And he rose and took the child and his mother by night and departed to Egypt. And he remained there until the death of Herod. This was to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet out of Egypt. I called my son. And then Herod, when he saw that he had been tricked by the wise men, became furious, and he sent and killed all the male children in Bethlehem and in all the region who were two years old or under, according to the time that he had ascertained from the wise men. Then was fulfilled what was spoken by the prophet Jeremiah. A voice was heard in Ramah, weeping and loud lamentation, Rachel weeping for her children, she refused to be comforted because they are no more. But when Herod died, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared in a dream to Joseph in Egypt, saying, Rise, take the child and his mother and go to the land of Israel. For those who sought the child's life are dead. And he rose and he took the child and his mother and went to the land of Israel. But when he heard that Archelaus was reigning over Judea in the place of his father Herod, he was afraid to go there. And being warned in a dream, he withdrew to the district of Galilee, and he went and lived in a city called Nazareth, 
so that what was spoken by the prophets might be fulfilled, that he would be called a Nazarene. All right, so there's a bunch of things that we could note right away, but I want to begin this morning by taking a good look at this character that seems to be buzzing in the background of this text the whole time, and that is Herod, you know? We know a lot about Herod from the scriptures, but I would guess that most of us know very little about Herod, or we've dug very little into who this guy was, what he was about, and or we just gloss over him. It's easy to do. I know I have for a while, but he's a big deal, and he's, he and his family's shadow is cast over the entirety of the Gospels. The first thing we need to know about Herod is that he's this megalomaniac. He's obsessed with power. And he gets his rule when he travels to Rome and makes his case for kingship at the ripe age of 23. And 30 years before Jesus is born, Herod actually begins his rule. And he takes Israel, this tiny little mouse in a world full of big cats, and he makes them relevant on the world stage. I mean, Herod was this amazing builder. And I've been to Israel and I've seen to this day 2,000 years later, the remains of some of these magnificent feats of building that he has made. I mean, he built world-class harbors. He turned Jerusalem into a world-class city. He rebuilt the temple into arguably the most beautiful structure that the world had ever seen. So beautiful, in fact, that the disciples even notice how magnificent and marvelous it is in Mark chapter 13. But the way Herod does all of this is actually not through thoughtful leadership. He does it through one word, fear. He comes in and blood starts flowing in the streets. He butchers thousands of people. Anyone that he is threatened by, they're gone. See ya. Jewish zealots, priests, Pharisees, even women and children. In fact, he so needs his power and his control over this region that he is king over that he becomes paranoid by everyone. He famously killed even his own favorite wife and several of his sons who he loved simply because he felt like they were a threat. But it was also said of Herod that he had the vision and power to move mountains Which brings me to one of Herod's most impressive symbols of his power and might at the time. And it was one of Herod's five palaces that he built in that region. And it was called Herodium. Google it on your phone today, Herodium. You can go there still today. Herod uses slave labor to literally make a man-made mountain that did not exist before. And on top of this mountain, he places this palace fortress, and it's still there 2,000 years later. And they've unearthed the swimming pool that sits at the base of this mountain, and it's the size of a football field. And just because he could, he builds an entire garden that sits in the middle of this thing. It's absolutely incredible. But more importantly than the structure itself, do you want to know where this place is located? A stone's throw outside of Bethlehem, right outside where the real king of the Jews is to be born. You feel the tension that Matthew wants you to feel in this text. You've got Herod, the king of the Jews. And as we learned last week, here comes the real king. 
which brings us to our text today. And hopefully this gives you a flavor for just what's going on here because last week we learned that rumor has it this king has indeed been born to the Jews and people are reading stars and coming to worship this newborn king and apparently Herod wants to worship him too, but Herod can't help himself because today we see Herod's true colors shine through because he doesn't want to worship Jesus. What does he want to do? Wants to butcher him kill him. He's threatened by him. Anyone that seeks to even come close to touching the celebrity, the power, the control that Herod has, I want him gone, destroyed. And this is how it has always been, isn't it? The kingdom of darkness will always try to snuff out the light of this world. And we can feel this reality in our world today. The world is a dark place. And it feels a lot of times like it's coming after the light. And while the circumstances of this story might seem unique, it's how it's always been. And that's why the psalmist says in the second psalm, why did the nations conspire and the people's plot in vain? The kings of the earth rise up and the rulers band together. Why? Against the Lord and against his anointed. This is how it's always been. And so the story we read today, it's filled with tragedy. And I think it's so tempting at times to read these stories. And if we've been in church for a while, we begin to sanitize them in our minds. But I want you to sit with the tragedy that is in this text. And yet, on one hand, we have this horrendous tragedy and God's kingdom on the other hand is breaking in in the most unexpected way and while it looks on the surface like Herod is winning evil is winning Jesus is actually coming onto the scene and displaying that he is Lord he is king he is Messiah not he will be he is even at the ripe age of two or three years old little toddler Jesus is king of the universe And Matthew wants you to see this. And as we move through the narrative, Matthew pulls out three prophecies that Jesus steps right in and fulfills. And it would be tempting to just sit here and go, okay, Matthew is just trying to have us see that Jesus is the Messiah. But maybe even more importantly than that, Matthew wants you to see what they actually say, what they communicate individually about who this Messiah is and what he is going to be about in this world. And I think a good thread that we can pull out is that God rules in the tragedy of this world. And that was hard for me to even write this week, you know, like, because it doesn't feel that way. You know, you look at the news, you read Twitter, and sometimes you just wonder, Maybe like me, like, God, are you still ruling today? But he does. He rules over sin. He rules in the midst of sorrow. And he rules in obscurity. Look at the sovereign hand of God as the text began in verse 13. Now when they had departed, behold, an angel of the Lord appears to Joseph in a dream and he says, Take your child, get out of here, Herod's coming after him. 
So God sends this angel to Joseph, and this first prophecy that we get at the end of this first section is right out of the book of Hosea, out of Egypt I called my son. And these little snippets of prophecy act like these hyperlinks today, right? Like a Jew of the of that day would have immediately known the context of these verses. This is a fulfillment of Israel, God's people's history as God's people who become this nation after being called into Egypt. And then the exodus from Egypt becomes the central point of the history of God's people. And Jesus is going to do this too. He's going to go right into Egypt and then he's going to come out of Egypt and the ties run, run deep. Jesus is the one greater than Moses, of course, as God protected Moses when Pharaoh killed all the male Israelites. So God here protects Jesus as Herod seeks to kill all the little boys in Bethlehem. And just as Pharaoh fails to do what he wanted to do with Moses, so Jesus fails. I mean, (laughs) Jesus doesn't fail. Herod fails to kill Jesus. And even as God calls his people out of bondage in Egypt, this is all just setting up a picture of Jesus' mission, which will be to set free his people from a greater bondage, a greater slavery, bondage to sin. And we've already been told this in Matthew chapter 1. I don't know if you remember this, but the angel actually tells Mary, you're going to call this dude Jesus, this baby that is born to you. Why? For he will save his people from their sins. As a mom, could you imagine that? (laughs) Your baby is going to be Messiah. And you see the fulfillment that's going on here. Jesus is the new Israel. He's the son that obeys in all the ways that Israel doesn't. He's the son that goes to Egypt and comes out. But more than that, he's the one that will go into sin and pull those in bondage to sin out as well. But I want us to see is that Jesus has actually got to go to the place of bondage first. He goes to the place of slavery. Jesus goes to Egypt. And this is not just geographically true. This is spiritually true in our lives. All of us in this room know Egypt. We know the exiling nature of our sin. It separates us from where we want to be, who we want to be, where we want to go in life. And God doesn't just look at Egypt from afar and say, I'm going to take care of it. He enters right into it. Have you experienced God ruling over the Egypt in your life? The bondage to sin. Has he entered your sin? Have you let him get into your sin? Because just as God is constantly reminding his people that their identity as a nation rests on the fact that he is the God that pulled them out of slavery, so we so often forget the bondage that we were once in before Christ pulled us out. Just look at the Gospels. Where are the places that Jesus goes to? Places of bondage. Jesus is constantly going to the destitute, the unclean, the prostitute, the oppressed, the sinner, and calls them out. And Matthew wants you to know that even as a baby, this is what the king will be like. This is what the king will be here to do. 
and this is how he will rule. But the only way to address our greatest problem in life is not by ignoring it, but by looking our Egypt in the face and overcoming it. Are you in bondage this morning? Many of us in this room walk in here with secret struggles. And rather than bring them forth before the king of the universe, we're tempted to hide them, shove them away. Can I encourage you this morning that Jesus is not afraid of your Egypt? In fact, he goes straight into it and he'll be right in the center of it. I want you to know that if you are in Christ, you are not in bondage anymore. That's a smokescreen. That's a lie from the pits of hell. Wasn't it the chief of sinners that said, he who knew no sin became sin so that we might become the righteousness of God. And while you might think that you are defined by Egypt, you are not. You are defined by him. Jesus will rule over sin, but he will also rule over sorrow. Look at the second section. Herod actually comes to do what he's been planning to do. Then Herod, when he saw, this is verse 16, that he had been tricked by the wise men, he became furious. And he sent and killed all the male children in Bethlehem and in all of that region who were two years old or under, according to the time that he had ascertained from the wise men. Then was fulfilled what was spoken by the prophet Jeremiah. A voice was heard in Ramah, weeping and loud lamentation. Rachel weeping for her children because she refused to be comforted because they are no more. What's going on here? This one kind of stumped me a little bit this week, right? So as you remember, last week, Herod is informed that God would put the newborn Jewish king in Bethlehem. And so the wise men, they find him, they worship him. And then all of a sudden, Herod starts to notice, well, the wise men didn't come back. And so he smells out that they're not coming back and he gets to work. Remember, Herod is already a monstrous murderer. So adding a few more dead children to his list probably wouldn't be much for him. And of course, Matthew wrote this gospel at least in part to show the many ways in which Jesus fulfills the Old Testament messianic prophecies. But I wondered this week, like, how do Rachel's tears fit into all of this, apart from the fact that all mothers cry and weep over their children dying? I mean, really, on the surface, this this one doesn't even read like a prophecy. But remember that if someone in the first century just got even a clip of a verse, they would know the context. And often in that context is holding the intention that unlocks this whole thing. So what do we know about Rachel? Rachel grieves in the biblical narrative over her lack of children because she fears that the messianic line would die out and her children wouldn't be a part of that. And Matthew says, I see the same phenomenon happening when Herod kills all the little baby boys in Bethlehem. There's this great sorrow once Herod's soldiers go into town and destroy all the little boys. It could have looked like the death of Israel's hope in a Messiah. Now, this is speculation, but I just want you to picture this with me. Put yourself in the shoes of the wise men walking down the road on their way back from meeting the Messiah face to face. Their hearts are full of joy and jubilation. They're so excited. They can't believe it. Messiah has come. We've just seen his face. But as they get closer and closer to home, rumblings along the trade route that they are traveling start bubbling up. Herod did. What? 
Herod went on a rampage? Where? Bethlehem? Who did he kill? All the little boys? All of them. All of them? All of them. Can you feel the drop in their gut? Having seen what they had just seen, they too might have felt like all hope was lost without word that Jesus had escaped. Not to mention all of the sorrow that would have been surrounding Bethlehem for all those little boys that were lost. And this again is the world that we live in, isn't it? The world full of sorrow. A world full of tears. A world full of senseless killing. A world full of murder. In this city, in this country, beyond this country, overseas. I mean, you guys have been watching the news. The last two weeks have been marked by sorrow, suffering, and senseless killing. But there are more words to this prophecy. They're not listed here, but Jeremiah says directly after this passage, thus says the Lord, there is hope for your future, declares the Lord. And your children shall come back to their own country. Because through Jesus coming back from Egypt, Rachel's spiritual children would continue in hope. But some of us are still discouraged this morning. I mean, as we live in a world of sorrow, we feel as if we're living in this Herod kind of world where Herod is still in control. It feels like Herod is king. It feels like evil is the stronger of two forces. Feels like evil is winning at our work, at our schools, in our neighborhoods, in our families, and even our marriages, on the news. But evil is not king. Not in this world. It may look like it, it may feel like it, but Jesus still rules and reigns in it. And I'm not sure what sorrow you bring in here this morning, but I want you to know that it is never too far from the Lord's reach. Jesus still rules in sorrow. He did then and he does now. And Jesus has proved himself faithful over the centuries, showing faithfulness to his people, even through times of exile and slaughter. What gives us the right to excuse ourselves from hope in these times of chaos. I mean, Jesus even says, in this world, you will, not you might, but you will have trouble. In other words, where Jesus is, there will always be a Herod as well, seeking to destroy and create chaos. But Jesus also says, take heart, for I have overcome the world. So when we feel like God is absent, could it be that actually God is most present? When it looks like God is forsaking these children and letting them die, is it possible that the Savior is actually near, that God moves near to the brokenhearted? But here's the question. Are we okay with lament and hope coexisting in the same atmosphere? Are we okay with lament and deep sorrow and anguish and hope coexisting in the same atmosphere. I mean, I got to witness this firsthand in a real and raw way over the last two weeks at my own church even. I have a good friend whose name is Dennis. He's become a friend of mine since I've been at 
this church in Grand Rapids, and last week his wife died suddenly from a heart attack in her 50s. And so as the week passed by, that happened on Wednesday, Thursday, Friday, we had exchanged a text, and on Sunday, I didn't think in a million years I would see Dennis and his family, but as I walked into our sanctuary, there Dennis was with his hands plastered to the ceiling and praise to his sovereign Lord with tears streaming down his face as he wept in grief. And I walked over to Dennis, and I didn't have any words. I can't even imagine what him and his children were feeling in that moment. And I gave him a hug, and he just looked me in the face, and he said, Trig, Nancy wouldn't want me to be anywhere else this morning, and we do not grieve as those without hope. Grief, hope, in the same sentence. Could it be that God is good enough for both of those things to exist on this side of eternity in the same realm? And one of the silliest things that a pastor can tell you is that you are to leave your sorrows at the door. No, you bring them straight into this place with your community, with your family, with your church. Because if you leave your sorrows at the door, you'll just have to pick them back up on the way out. You bring them straight in here. The Bible doesn't know of a hope that is detached from the day-of-day realities of our sorrows. It is real. And one day they will be put away for good. But for now, somehow, the Christian life is lived between these two worlds. And the hope of Christ is that we are given enough strength in his power to live in the tension of that world. And even Paul acknowledges this. In 2 Corinthians 4, says this, but we have this treasure, which is the gospel hope of a resurrection in jars of clay to show that the all-surpassing power is from God and not from us. We are hard-pressed on every side, but not crushed. We are perplexed, but not in despair. We are persecuted, but not abandoned, struck down, but not destroyed. We always carry around in our body the death of Jesus so that the life of Jesus may also be revealed in our body. Praise be to God for the hope of the resurrection (laughs) and that we don't have to serve a God that is fake, that calls us into more fake in a world that's filled with fake, but he's real and he speaks truth to the realities of sorrow and grief and suffering in our lives. And even in the midst of that, We can be perplexed, but not in despair. We can be persecuted, but not abandoned. We can know that we are struck down, but we are not destroyed. And this is what Matthew wants you to see about the king of the universe moving from his residence in heaven down into the messy world that he has created that has fallen into despair and chaos. And Jesus will defeat all of the sorrow, all of the suffering, all of the sin, but how Jesus will win is the substance of our third and final prophecy today. Look at verse 19. Because Jesus doesn't just rule over sin. He doesn't just rule in the midst of sorrow. Jesus will win and rule in utter obscurity. 
But when Herod died, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared in a dream to Joseph in Egypt, saying, Rise, take the child and his mother and go to the land of Israel. For those who sought the child's life are dead. And he rose and took the child and his mother, and he went to the land of Israel. But when he had heard that Archelaus was reigning over Judea in place of his father Herod, he was afraid to go there. And being warned in a dream, he withdrew to the district of Galilee. And he went and lived in a city called Nazareth, so that what was spoken by the prophets might be fulfilled, that he would be called a Nazarene. And he went, and he lived in a city called Nazareth, so that what was spoken by the prophets might be fulfilled, that he would be called a Nazarene. Matthew's tipping his hat to something that is incredibly significant about what these prophecies say about who Jesus is and how he's going to go about his work. Because this pronouncement that he's a Nazarene, think about this, is the last word that we have about Jesus for about 25 years in Matthew's gospel. Here he's a child and then we'll be reintroduced to Jesus in a way as he starts his public ministry, but decades have passed in between then and now. And so this is what hangs over Matthew's mind, a majority of Jesus's lifetime. And why is this significant? Because what do we know about Nazareth? Well, Nazareth is a town of about 200 people. It's simple, it's rural, it's on the poorer side. Nazareth wasn't a strategic town politically. It wasn't a strategic town militarily. It wasn't a strategic town religiously. And even in Jesus' day, it was so insignificant that it was left out of the majority of documents that we have from antiquity. But we know it exists because Nazarene was actually a derogatory slang term used for an individual from a remote and despised place. I mean, we know this. I can prove it with the Gospels because before he follows Jesus, his own to-become disciple, Nathaniel, questions following him with a phrase that readers will never forget, can anything good come from Nazareth. His own disciples know that Nazareth is no place town in the middle of nowhere filled with nobody people. And yet not only is Nazareth a despised place, but Jesus will actually be despised in Nazareth. Later on in the gospels, he'll come back to Nazareth, his hometown during his public ministry and be rejected by his own people and his own brothers. Even James and Jude, who then later write books, and our New Testament don't believe in him, at least at the time. And why do they reject him? Because they start making these connections. I think it dawns on them, Jesus is too ordinary. He's just like one of us. We know his parents and his siblings. It's unpardonable to people that Jesus would be just like them. In fact, how do they talk about Jesus? They say, this is Mary's son. We know Mary. And on the surface, we might actually lose the significance of this. Of course, he's Mary's son, but in that day, you would never refer to someone by their mom. Do you know what they're saying? Everyone in this small town knew Jesus' origin. He was the supposed bastard child. Who's his dad? We know his mom. It's Mary. Or how about Isaiah 53? tells us that there was nothing of his appearance that we should be attracted to him. And this is the heart of the gospel, that God gave up his divine residence. He gave up his glory and came to earth and became ordinary. Do you know that? 
that God's son became Mary's son. In fact, have you ever stopped to think that Jesus spent around 30 years of his life or so in Nazareth, some small, obscure village, living a very local and mundane life? And don't take this the wrong way, but he was just Jesus, who day after day, year after year, lives a small, local life in Nazareth. And for those of us that want Jesus to be Superman, Clark Kent, big, strong, handsome, don his cape, this is offensive. But now we're right back into the kingdom of heaven is this tiny seed. Jesus' greatness is actually in his smallness. His power is demonstrated in his weakness. And unlike the Herods of the world, Jesus has authority because of who he is. He is king. He doesn't need the status of a special place, born to special parents with special amounts of money. He is king. He is the king from Nazareth. But this especially doesn't jive in a culture like America, does it, right? We're celebrity, attention-seeking, status, infatuation. Just drive everyone where people are obsessed with self-promotion, self-importance. This is what Herod was all about. It's about me. I'll build palaces that show my worth. I'll have the right title that exalts my worth. I'll have the right house that will show my worth. But look at how God comes to us in Jesus. He's going to live in obscurity. In fact, Jesus rules in obscurity. And if we are going to be like Jesus and put him on display in our lives, we must be the capital C church that embraces living mundane, faithful lives for Jesus in the obscurity of our day to day. There's a man on our church staff named Ryan. And he's been a picture of this in my life over the last four months. Ryan went to prison and had his life radically transformed by the grace of our Lord Jesus. And as a felon, he couldn't get many jobs, but eventually he felt the spirit of the Lord telling him that he needed to begin to serve at our church. And so he would come in and he would do odd jobs every single day as if it were his nine to five after he got out of jail. And he worked and he worked and he worked and he studied the word and he studied the word and he studied the word. And God just kept doing this work in him. And eventually it was undeniable. This man needed to be on staff. He needed to be the facilities coordinator at our church. He was that good. We made him the facilities coordinator of of our church. And what's interesting about our church is that it actually sits right in the downtown of Grand Rapids. And Grand Rapids is a place that is filled with people that don't have housing. And so a ministry was set up years and years ago at our church that cares for what we call our neighbors, those that are experiencing homelessness and that are experiencing much of what goes into getting them to the place where they experience homelessness in the first place. These people are oftentimes felons. They have drug addictions, um, alcohol addictions, lots of brokenness and chaos in their lives. So Ryan began to serve on Tuesday mornings when we bring people into our church and uh, give them food and wash their feet and cut their hair and resource them and try to get them on their feet so that they can get jobs and then move into the community and be producers in that community. And Ryan began to grow kingship with 
so much of this population of the people that were the outcasts, the people from Nazareth, those that were obscure. And a few weeks into my employment there, I walked up at 6 a.m. one morning, and where is Ryan? He's sitting out on the front porch of our church, and who's sitting next to him? There's three of our neighbors, and what's he doing? He's got a Bible open, and he's walking them through the Gospels. And a few days later, I'm leaving late at church one day. It was about 6 p.m., and I walk outside, and where is Ryan? He's sitting out on a table again, praying with one of our neighbors. Then a few days later, I'm down in the lobby of our church and one of our neighbors comes and starts banging on the window and he says he needs help. And I asked him, how can I help you? And he said, no, I want to speak to Ryan. Ryan's my pastor. Ryan is a man living his life out of mundane faithfulness to Jesus. No one will often see what he does. And yet he is living such a mighty life for Christ on his street corner where God has placed them. The homeless population in Grand Rapids, Michigan considers the custodian to our ch- of our church to be their pastor. Because you know what? He is. And it's been so seen that our lead pastor at the church calls him Pastor Ryan now. And I love it. He doesn't have a new title on the website, but he's a pastor. So what do you do on your street corner? What do you do in the obscurity of your own life? Your Nazareth. At our church, we call it the 90-10. 90% of our lives are actually lived out of, outside of the four walls of the places that we call home to worship on Sunday morning or Wednesday nights. So let me ask you a question. Does Jesus rule in your life just here in this 10% or have you allowed him to rule over the other 90 as well? The 90 that we can't see, that we won't see. See, this is where God does his best work. Gospel ministry is serving Jesus when no one is watching, when no one will write an article about it, when not even your spouse might see it. That's what serving Jesus in obscurity looks like. What are you doing when you're at work? What are you doing when you're in your dorm room? What are you doing on your street corner? What are you doing in the midst of your day-to-day life with your kids and your spouse? These are the things that over a lifetime prove the type of faithful ministry that we do for Jesus. It's not the big bang moments. It's not the moments in the spotlight. It's not the moments when everybody is watching. Jesus lives almost 30 years in utter obscurity. And then we get this little picture of his ministry for three years. But Jesus was still Jesus. You ever wonder what he was doing then? I do. Jesus rules in our sin. Jesus rules in the midst of our sorrows. And he rules in obscurity. And if we want to be the church, capital C Church, that puts Jesus on display for the world to see. We have to serve him, not we should. We have to in the obscure places in our lives. But today's text is truly a tale of two kingdoms, isn't it? 
Because while Jesus is fulfilling these prophecies that seem so upside down, Herod is still buzzing in the background of this whole text. But here's the thing. Jesus is the summer to Herod's winter. He's everything that Herod isn't. Because here you have Jesus and Herod side by side. And I don't know about you, but I find the contrast between these two kingdoms absolutely compelling. Because one of them lives up there in the mountain palace and the other one down there in Bethlehem and then Nazareth among the peasants. One of them uses slaves to build his kingdom and the other one becomes a slave to welcome those into his kingdom. One of them creates sorrow and suffering and the other enters into our sorrow and suffering. And this is the message of the gospel, that the king of the universe is not up in some palatial estate, but that he came down into our world with the least of these, became a vulnerable, killable baby, was exiled into Egypt just like his forefathers, experienced sorrow and grief and lived in obscurity for 90% of his life. This world is where he chooses to take up residence and display his rule, even in the midst of all of the tragedy. Our God is not a detached God. He's not detached from the mess of our world. The real King Jesus gets into our obscurity, sorrow, and sin. Jesus will take on the ultimate Egypt a place of slavery, slavery to sin. Jesus will become a man of sorrows and weep in the garden of Gethsemane, overcome with grief and anxiety. And Jesus will be despised like the Nazarene that he is, spit on and mocked at the cross and plastered above his head. They'll put a sign that was meant to mock him, but was also the truest thing they could have said about him. There hung the king of the Jews. And what was done there is that Jesus is actually mocking all the rulers of sin and suffering in this world because he's using their systems for what they think is his defeat but is really their defeat. And Paul explains this in Colossians 2 where he says, having canceled the charge of our legal indebtedness which stood against us and condemned us, he has taken it away nailing it to the cross and having disarmed the powers and authority, he made a public spectacle of them, triumphing over them at the cross. Think about that. Although both demonic and human rulers conspire against Jesus, this is what Psalm 2 tells us the kingdom of darkness will always seek to snuff out the light of this world. Jesus doesn't just defeat them. The cross is a mockery of those powers. It's God putting the rulers of this age on blast. You think you're so strong? I'm going to defeat you in the most upside down way by taking it all into myself all the sin, all the sorrow, crucified on the cross. But he's not going to stay there, is he? It's going to be done, over with. He's going to rise again and stand victorious like the king that he is. But he is not a detached God, is he? He comes in obscurity. He lives in obscurity. 
He breathes in obscurity. And he dies in obscurity. Jesus rules in the tragedy of our world, doesn't he? Do we believe that this morning? Gosh, I want to believe that. Lord, we believe. Help our unbelief. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we are grateful that this is true. That you rule over sin, that you rule over our sorrow, and that you rule in obscurity, which means that we can come to you in the nooks and crannies of our lives where we think that your reach may not be, but yet you are there with us. And God, we learn in this text that the way up is really down, that the way to win our lives is to actually lose our lives, and that the way to to life is actually through death, your death. Lord, we ask that you help us to see this every single day of our lives, that winning means that we must first lose our lives to you. You were king then, and you are king now, and you will be king forevermore. Thank you, Lord. We love you. Thanks for listening to the Addison Street Community Church Podcast. We hope you are encouraged by God's word. And for more information about joining us for a worship service or taking your next steps with us, please visit ASCCChicago.org.